How's working from home and going for you? Remarkably remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that will keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. Check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. A special edition of WARP in Cincinnati. It is Paul Jr., C. Trent Rosecrans, and Mo Egger with us here at the Athletic because it's because it's big because this is not this is not your standard ordinary WARP episode. This is officially our first edition of Game Changers, which which is is kind of a working title. Game Changers. Yeah, I don't know. To maybe changing Again. the game with the yeah. game changers, and it's kind of funny because this didn't really change the game inevitably in the long run. But uh, nope. it is fun to go back and look at because we're so basically we're we're looking at the 1995 Reds specifically through the lens of the last time a Cincinnati professional sports team advanced in the postseason 25 years ago at the highest level. At the highest level, yeah. Sorry, shout out Kelly Cup. But uh at the highest level, Major League Baseball, the Reds swept the Dodgers in three games in the NLDS to advance to eventually get swept by the Braves in the NLCS. But advanced, most importantly. Uh And we want to kind of look back. It was a fascinating time, a fascinating team. And I find it one of the more interesting – segments of time in Reds history. We will have Jeff Brantley on a little bit later in the show to talk about that team. He pitched all three games uh, in that series. And we're going to run through some of the uh, pieces of the series, pieces of that team and everything else. But overall, I mean, it was just a wild time um, to be a baseball fan, much less a Reds fan. Yeah, it's I've said a couple of different times publicly and, and otherwise it, it's it's almost my favorite all-time Reds team, and not because the result was was better than ninety, but um, it, sometimes it, like a team comes on, it comes along at just the right time of your life. So for me, I graduated from high school in nineteen ninety five, and um, I was a little bit of a loner, and nobody liked the Reds that year, so I went to a lot of games by myself. And <laughs> you know, no, in, in all seriousness, it was. Like I, I liked that team because nobody cared, and it was yeah. sort of like it was it was kind of like mine to enjoy with, with you know with a handful of other people, but it, it was kind of like mine to enjoy where they didn't draw. I mean, I remember going to opening day that year, and I, th- there weren't forty five thousand people in the ballpark. They got booed all afternoon. They were really sluggish and losing to the Cubs. After that, they didn't draw forty thousand fans the rest of the year. They got off to a terrible start. Uh, they were one and eight. Um, and 
they had this incredible stretch. I looked it up today from May 6th until August 29th. They went 71 and 33. They finished with 85 wins in a 144 game season, a better win loss percentage than the 90 team. And it was like nobody cared. I mean, I, I even remember when they, when they clinched, it was like, yeah, big deal. No, because it's coming off the strike, obviously. No one cared. If you cared about this team, it was like, it was like loving a, a band that no one cares about. Like you love their records. No one else does. That's what it was like being a Reds fan in 1995. And they had this team where they had very few holes. They had really good starting pitching. They were awesome defensively. They stole a ton of bases. They could beat you with power. Larkin won the MVP. I'm not really sure he should have, but he won the MVP. They ran away with the division. Insanely like interesting time because they had a lame duck manager, fans turning their backs. Marge shot right at the sort of peak of, holy crap, this lady's out of control. And no one cared. <laughs> Just, no it's one remarkable cared. to be 25 years later. No one cared. Well, it, I, I was going back and, and found the, I have the old Cincinnati Inquirer edition from that day, which by the way, for, if you're, if you want to be reminded what newspapers used to look like, it's like, it's like a hundred pages. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, literally the main column is reds no more with three Z's win a wake up call for fans. Like that was the storyline that it took until them sweeping this playoff series. For anybody to care, and it points out in the lead about how it wasn't even close to a sellout at at Riverfront for this for this game for them to come home and and sweep the Dodgers. It 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 is fascinating to see this. There was just not many people that care. I mean, the lineup of this team, uh, and these are all most of these guys maybe peaks of most of their careers, depending on you know who you're viewing. I mean. Catching Benito Santiago, first base Hal Morris, second base Brett Boone, Larkin at short, a Jeff Branson, Mark Lewis, who you'll hear a lot about, uh, platoon at third, Ron Gantz, big year in left, which was incredible to watch, a Thomas Howard, Darren Lewis uh, rotation in center, Reggie Sanders in right field. They had Pete Shurek, John Smiley, and David Wells, these three lefties throwing um, at starting the three games. The, there was, these guys were, were crushing it. I mean, Brantley as the closer. Um, there, there was just, I mean, you, you talk about Larkin winning the MVP. There's a lot of guys. Ron Gant was so great to watch that year and absolutely popping out of his jersey in a, in a frightening way. <laughs> <laughs> just ripped. Yeah. It was, it was an insanely Great year for this team. I mean, again, they, if you take their win loss percentage and translate it to a 162 game season, that's a 95 win team. But so they get up to this awful start. There's, I, I could, I could go longer than you want on, on the regular season, but they get off to a one and eight start. The 10th game they're losing to the Mets 11 to four in the eighth inning, come back and win, but they get off to this awful start and they really had this sort of, Blah, finish where late in the season, and I'll never forget this because I came down from UD for one of these games late in the season. They had, they had built their entire team around beating Atlanta. They traded for David Wells because they wanted three lefties against, uh, Dave Justice, Fred McGriff, and I'm going to say Ryan Klesko was, was on that team too, but they had all these good lefty hitters. So 
they they play the Braves late in the season at at Synergy, and they throw Smoltz, Glavin, and Maddox at them. Three game weekend series. The Reds score one run in each of the three games, lose all three. And so, you know, up until then, there was this sort of like building to, hey, you know, the Reds are going to be playing in the playoffs. They are going to run away with this division. They they kick the crap out of the Astros. Uh, they have a team that's b- built to beat Atlanta. They can steal bases. They've got these three lefty starters. And then at home, they score three runs in three games in a weekend series against Atlanta. And I think there were a lot of fans who, from that point, as stupid as it might sound, were like, yeah, they're not beating the Braves anyway. <laughs> and right. in order to play them, they have to go through this weird round of of NLDS playoffs that we're not used to, we had never heard of. It was weird. But there was this sense, I think, that a lot of people had that what did happen against Atlanta was going to happen against Atlanta because it did happen against Atlanta very late in the season in Cincinnati. Yeah, this is the first year with realignment and the DS. So there's a lot of, you know, if you read what came out of that, there's a lot of, oh, I guess, how do we celebrate these micro series? Like, and there is some, some hilarity to that, but there's a lot of confusion about how to handle it. Uh, for what ended up happening in the CS, uh, the Reds lose two extra inning games at home to start the series, which is just excruciating. And then they go into Atlanta and Greg Maddox takes it to him and Steve Avery. And, and that was that. Um, but you know, they two game that, that was what happened. I mean, you, when you, they, they lose in, in extra innings and that was, you're not going to take out that Braves team. They ended up winning the World Series, uh, beating the Indians, uh, four games to two. So let, let's dive in a little bit to this particular series and this team a little bit though. And just have the first question, you know, who, who gained and on lost the, the most for their legacy with this series? And I think there's some interesting answers, uh, to be had in there. Trent, what do you, do you, do you have any opinions on that? Well, it's kind of funny, like, cause you guys are talking about, um, the local perception and all that. And I, uh, was not in Cincinnati at the time. I was actually in college at uh, the University of Georgia, so I was watching the Braves. I I watched so much of the Braves that year. I, I don't know why. Um, I didn't grow up a Braves fan, but I was in Georgia. They were on all the time. It was, you know, we had had the strike where baseball had been gone, you know, and I, I think there were two ways to react to that, and a lot of people just stayed away. And then some, like I, th- I think Mo, kind of sounds like you were like me, where it's like, oh man, I miss this. Yeah, I, you, and, and and maybe kind of like we're feeling now, um, like oh, I just I just miss baseball. I want baseball, and it's back. It's not perfect, but it's it's great. It's so much fun, and you know that Braves team was a lot of fun to watch. That was a really good team, and I remember thinking like this Reds team is really good too. And, and like, I just kind of remember it. Um, it's funny. I, it, there was one game where we were driving. It was myself and Mark Lancaster, um, former Reds beat writer for the Cincinnati post. Uh, Mark and I were in college and we drove down to Macon to cover a Georgia soccer game, women's soccer game. And it was like pouring, um, and we couldn't get the Braves on the Atlanta station, but we got WLW. So we listened to, to Marty and Joe, uh, call one of those games, um, which is neither here nor there, but it just, it's, it's what I remember about 19, 
uh, the NLCS that year. Uh, so that Braves team was just so good. And I think people were into it, at least in my little area. I remember our, our, you know, the TV lounge in our, our dorm, people were watching the Braves and they were always on because they were the Braves. Maddox had come that year and oh my God, Maddox was so good that year. Um, so watching the Reds, you kind of went and saw, and you're like, oh, man, this team's really good. Reggie Sanders is a star. Uh, Barry Larkin, you know, peak Barry Larkin. Uh, you know, and then even when I was watching today, Benito Santiago. Um, yeah. How good he was. And and uh, I, I don't think I even came close to what your question was, but the difference – defensively in those games between Benito Santiago and Mike Piazza. (laughs) I mean, it is glaring, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the whole, both teams, but certainly between those two, it was, they they made much of the fact that that was the worst defensive team in baseball and the Dodgers and the best and the Reds and I'll be, yeah, it certainly played out. (laughs) Yeah. But even like the Reds, like you had some poor defensive play, um, but like nothing was as glaring as the difference between Santiago and, and, and Piazza. It was just, it was just unreal. And this is not peak Santiago. Um, you know, this isn't the Padres guy. This is later day, but man, he was really good. I mean, he was really good that season when you look at the stats. Um, so I don't, I don't know. You just keep looking how Morris was. How Morris, there was a, a, a point in the, um, game one where you see him and Jeff Brantley talking and you're like, man, how Morris was a big dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's just so many guys. This was a really good team with a lot yeah. of, I, 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 I don't think I realized until rewatching these how good that team was. You know, what's interesting is the takeaway um, that I hadn't really thought of until I read through a lot of what the narrative was coming out of it. It was a, so much about uh, Jim Bowden yeah, and, and about how he built this and how he had picked so many of these pieces off the scrap heap. And he was, you know, when he was hired, he was the youngest general manager and he'd been in the middle of the whole Marge thing and dealing with that. And they, they always had these cutaways to Jim and Marge. And you just feel like, God, this was Jim's life. <laughs> sitting with Marge watching baseball games and, and you know, it's a, but um, that was the thing was, this was really for me, it was his only team that advanced in the playoffs and it was arguably the best one as far as the moves that he made. I mean, 99, obviously there's a lot of, of moves made there, but you know, where it was his first run and it, it made a name for himself. It, he kind of lived off of this team and this a, a little bit. Uh, to keep him around as long as he ended up staying around through uh, 03. Yeah. So, you know, to, to answer the question, I jotted down five names. Um, and we'll spend, I'm sure more oh, show time off answering the question. <laughs> so, you know, obviously, you know, Barry Larkin, if you look at his postseason numbers, he was phenomenal. He was phenomenal this year. He was phenomenal. You know, obviously in the regular season, he won the MVP, but he was great in the postseason. He's like the only guy that actually hit against Atlanta. But you kind of viewed this as if you talk about the 90 team, nobody says that's Barry Larkin's team. 95, 
even though there were a lot of other dudes who had big seasons, it felt like this is Barry's team and he played well in the postseason. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about David Wells, who I'm sure there are casual baseball fans who know the name, know how long he pitched that don't remember him coming to Cincinnati. And it's interesting. If you watch game three, they make an allusion to something that I remember being a big deal that the Reds traded for a guy who had a tattoo. Like that was <laughs> David Wells had a tattoo of his kid. It was his like newborn son and he got a tattoo and it's like, Oh dude, how's this going to play, man? He's got a tattoo. And it's like, you know, 17 years later, we'd watch Matt Latos with not an inch of his body with ink on it, but it was a big deal. But he, he pitched really well in, in game three. He, he's the last, you know, pitcher win totals, do what you want with him, but he's, he's the last starting pitcher of a home game won by the Reds in October. Um, I jotted down the name Davey Johnson. We'll talk about him. Obviously, yeah. Mark Lewis is probably the, the, the person that everybody remembers for the Grand Slam, but it's Jim Bowden. And it's funny because if you watch these three games with two different sets of announcers, there's never a consensus on how to say his last name. Like no. Jim yes. Palmer in game three, Jim Palmer in game three set, calls him by Bowden and Bowden as if he doesn't know. He's like, well, I'll just call them both and I'll be right. I, you know, it's, it's hilarious. They don't know how to say his name, but. At this time, like, he had grabbed these dudes like Ron Gant off, you know, not the, the scrap heap, but I guess with Ron Gant, it would, that would apply. He yeah. gets dudes like Shurik and Smiley from other teams. Um, they had platoons in center, third, catcher. It's like he, he really assembled this really good club and did it kind of creatively and using some imagination. And then he hires a manager that gets the gig despite the owner really having nothing to do with it. Like Jim Bowden's star was really, really huge in the mid nineties. And this team is why. And so I think if you're going to talk about his legacy, people are going to talk about a lot of things he did that people didn't agree with, or that people are still mad about to this day. But in the mid nineties, man, it's like, Holy crap, the Reds might have the most creative and best GM in baseball. And I, that was a thing. That was a thing at the time. And and so I, I kind of feel like, this season and the fact that they advance in the postseason more than anybody else sort of adds or, or, or just, I don't know if cements is the right word, but, but he's the person that gains the most by what happens this year. You're right. And here's the other interesting thing that I honestly didn't realize to really going back through it. He fought for Davey Johnson to even be the manager of this team because Marge wanted Ray Knight and they had to come to a compromise that to just let Davey manage out a lame duck season knowing he was lame duck the whole time you go back and you look through what was written uh across you know mlb notebooks that whole year it's davy being like yeah i mean i'm just happy to be here i'm gonna finish out this year and do as good do as good as i can they even make mention of it in in uh in game one i think where they say look uh yeah, Davey's just kind of happy to be here. I mean, he, he's he, he could a guy win manager of the year and then still be fired. Right. Like that was part of the conversation, but it was because Bowden said no. I he needs to be able to finish what he's been here rebuilding. You can't move to Ray Knight yet, and he won that battle with Marge. Ray Knight turned out to be terrible, and you know ends up putting this team together. And, you know, that's sort of the other part of this was, and Davey looks great. Davey hit all the right buttons, you know, during the season. You know, when you talk about platoons and guys playing above their level, um, and, and certainly he outmanaged the crap of Tommy. Tommy Lasorda was awful. Absolutely 
awful in this series. And I, I was, I was beside myself watching every game wondering why Tommy Lasorda would be trotting Hideo Nomo out there throwing 77 mile per hour fastballs because he's dead in the sixth and everybody in the building knows it. Uh, and not pinch hitting you know, for him. Not pinching, dude. I, there, there are so many Tommy Lasorda moments. Yeah, I'll, I will save. But I, I, I have a, I, I'm, I have so, uh, multiple in here. In the early, every single game, he killed his pitcher, and it killed his, and it killed every game. Every single one was sticking with his starter forever, and it ending up biting him. Now he's, you know, his bullpen obviously wasn't the greatest thing ever, but it's probably better than Hideo Nomo throwing seventy-seven mile per hour fastballs. But well, that's neither here nor I, there. I, I would imagine Trent's with me that I, I, I'm looking forward to talking about Hideo Nomo, but because it was such a big deal when the Reds beat him, but he was such a a huge part of that '95 season for all of Major League Baseball. But the the Davy Johnson thing, and they they make a very brief allusion to it in the re, in the on the broadcast of of Game Three. But there's this, you know, thing all year long about well. Knight's going to be the manager next year. In fact, if if you look at the baseball almanac register for this season, they they list Knight as assistant manager, which I didn't remember. Mm. I just went because I, I wanted to go back go back and look and see who was on the coaching staff. And by the way, it's a coaching staff full of dudes who were all really good players. But it was Davy Johnson's being let go at the end of the year because he lived with his wife before he married her, and it was sort <laughs> of like said and talked about but never reported. And then two years ago, Davy Johnson wrote a book. And we were lucky enough to have him on the air. And I asked him about that and he confirmed it. He's like, yeah, he was, she was upset that I live with my wife before I married her. Now, I mean, you can take or leave that, but just can, can you imagine something like that happening today where an owner steps in and says this, this successful manager who's won before he can't manage our club. We're going to keep him around, but he can't manage our club because he quote lived in sin. Like that was a thing. And like it, it's, they sort of pussyfoot around it during the TV broadcast of all three of these games. And, and I've actually, cause I'm a dork, I've, I've, I've skimmed enough of those NLCS games just to watch Reggie Sanders strike out every single time that they keep <laughs> mentioning like, well, Marge Shot doesn't like Davy Johnson. Well, yeah, but why didn't she like him? According to a lot of people, including Davy Johnson himself, it's because he moved in. He married the woman. It wasn't like he was living with some lady. He married the woman, and still, that wasn't enough for old Marge. Imagine if he would have had a tattoo. They don't, you know what's funny is the difference. There's, we have an, we'll talk about announcers later, but the fact that there were different announcers. Um, that the different ways in which they sort of handle Marge as an owner is, is, is noticeable. You know, in the first two games, um, you've, you've got, um, who was it in the first two games? Uh, Greg Gumble and Joe Morgan. Yes. Yeah. Greg Gumble and Joe Morgan in the first two games. And then in the third game, you end up with Al Michaels and, uh, Tim McCarver and Jim Palmer and, Michaels just goes, he goes in, like he's just going in on Marge in like the fifth inning or something like that. And he's, he's calling her cheap and they're talking about how she won't hire any scouts and this, that. And then, then they start making fun of like the press guide. Like, I mean, they just, because she won't print it. She's like trying to save on paper costs. And it was like the, the, but the first two, they wanted, they would cut away and they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to dive into the Marge topic. And the first, it's kind of interesting, you know, when you're, when you're Al Michaels, like you go in, 
you know, it's fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, when you, when the other side was, was not really interested in that. Well, it's funny because they, Michaels and Palmer and, and, uh, McCarver, they, they, like Al Michaels tries to launch into the Davy Johnson conversation. And if you didn't know that those guys didn't call games one and two, you would kind of go like, well, this is a weird time to be bringing this up. It's game three. Like, how come you haven't told the story? Then you, you realize we had different announcers for games one and two. So this is a time for like Al Michaels to like unload his notebook on the Reds. And he starts into the whole like, well, Marge doesn't like Davey Johnson. And so, you know, he's probably not going to come back and Ray Knight's going to be the guy. And there's this long pause and you could almost see McCarver and Palmer looking at each other like, Dude, you take it. Oh, oh. And then, and then Al, after this big long pause, like he calls like a pitch in between. He, he like, he, he reignites it. He's like, yeah, guys, that certainly is weird what's happening with Davey Johnson. Like, <laughs> Jim Carver and Jim Palmer want nothing to do with talking about why Davey Johnson's going to lose his job at the end of this year. They want, they want nothing to do with it. And Al Michaels is like dragging him along like, guys, this is a huge subplot to this entire series. This manager may lose his job and he could get him to the World Series. And finally, you know, finally kind of at the end of the game, Tim McCarver, because they start talking about how Tommy Lasorda wasn't guaranteed to come back. And Al Michaels says something to the effect of, yeah, you know, would, would you believe that it's, it's the, the guy whose team is leading that we know is not going to come back? And Tim McCarver kind of goes off, but it, it took some pulling. Like it for a while, you could tell Al Michaels was like, teeing him up to go off on Davey Johnson and Marge Schott and the whole team, and neither would take the bait until the very end of the game. It was remarkable how casually Gumble and Morgan slipped that in in like the sixth inning. It was like it was like a throwaway line in the middle of the game, and I did a triple tick. I was like, "Wait, what?" Because I hadn't I hadn't gone into that yet, and it was just like they didn't even want to hardly touch on it. It, was, it wasn't even part of the thing. Which, by the way. Greg Gumble and Joe Morgan look exactly the same in 1995 as they do today. How is that possible? Like they look exactly the same. I thought you, if you'd have told me they called that game today, I would say yes. Of course they did. That's them. Unbelievable. Sorry. Greg Gumble calls a really nice game. Yeah, I enjoyed yeah. that. Very smooth. Um, let's. Uh, I I want to I want to dive into. Most memorable moment for you from what you guys watched took away from this from this uh sweep. So I would imagine most people, if you mention the ninety-five NLDS, the moment they think of is Mark Lewis hitting the Grand Slam because local guy, I think it was the first postseason Grand Slam, pinch hit postseason Grand Slam in the history of the game. Correct. Um, he almost passes Brett Boone, who's tagging up on first base like he's in the third grade. And it's weird <laughs> how he's doing that. But, and I'm, I'm interested in what Jeff Brantley has to say about this. You know what I remember more than anything? Not knowing how to react if they won the game. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're, they're, they're winning by 10 runs, right? They're, they're gonna win the National League Division Series. Now, if you do that, they unpop champagne, they, you know, plaster up the lockers. Like, it's it's a huge deal. Like, you could argue that it, it maybe shouldn't be, but, like, they go nuts. The player, they, it, you know, it, it looks no different than a World Series celebration, at least on TV. At the time, and I'll, I'll never forget it being a Friday night, and they're going to win the game. And Al Michaels mentions a, makes a couple of references at the end. He's like, you wouldn't know 
that they're about to clinch something here. We don't know really what they're clinching. I guess it's a berth in the LCS, but the park is half full. It actually had a pretty good crowd. It did not sell out, but you know, it, it, it was like a regular season game where, all right, let's, let's get out of here. It's a blowout. People didn't stick around for the celebration. And more than anything, I remember as a fan watching this going like, how are the players going to react? Is it going to be charged out of the dugout, shake hands? Like, you know, you, you want a 10 to one game in, in May, or is it going to look like they clinch something? Are there going to be hats and t-shirts? And it was kind of right in between. And I even read a lot of the newspaper articles for this one simple reason. I, I and I still don't know the answer to this. Did they do anything in the clubhouse beyond the ordinary after the game? Was there champagne? Uh, did they plaster up the lockers? Did Mard Shot not spring for champagne? Did baseball say, no, you're not going to do this? Because now all these clubhouse celebrations are branded. They put up Budweiser stuff. More than anything, I remember not knowing, like, what's the appropriate manner of celebrating something like this? Do we, do we go crazy? What, what, what's going to happen? That to me is the most memorable thing about this series because it was the first, aside from the strike year at 81, first ever NLDS. Yeah. We had the same conversation when the wild card came. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Funny, funny. You should mention that. And then Mo. we'll have it this year when we have the 83 team playoff. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> How do we react to any of this? Uh, well, I, I do want to mention the Daytona Tortugas in the first round popping champagne <laughs> from uh, six feet apart. So right. Well, here I want to answer. I want to answer the question. Yeah. Uh, I have this from our good friend Rory Glenn, who wrote this for the Inquirer on uh, uh, that game. I'll just read it off. This is sort of from that paper. Um, when Friday's route ended, Reds players created a mob scene around the pitcher's mound. The 53,276 fans showered relentless applause on the division series champs in addition to a roll or two of toilet paper. It was the Reds. A straight postseason victory, but the first ever front fans have celebrated since game two of the 90 World Series. In the clubhouse afterward, where Snoop Doggy Dog music blared from the stereo, <laughs> players <laughs> doused themselves with champagne. He goes on to mention it was Corbell Brute and uh, another kind that I don't know, and Budweiser. Hamilton High graduate Mark Lewis, who sealed the victory in the sixth inning with the first pinch hit playoff grand slam in Major League history, was a favorite target, but nobody stayed dry, not even general manager Jim Bowden, whose gray double-breasted suit was soaked. The fact that there's now another playoff series between the Reds and the World Series didn't dampen the celebration any. Quote, this is just as exciting as the other ones are going to be, said left fielder Ron Gant. There's the insight into what actually did happen afterwards. Um, and you know what? It's 1995. You're damn right Snoop Doggy Dog is hammering out of those speakers. Of course it is. Yeah. I'm not sure what else you would have played in 1995. Um, I, so I watched the YouTube version of game three and at the very, very end, cause they show everybody and I'm not sure that I would nothing against Rory, who I, I, I really like and respect. I, I don't know that I would go with mob scene on the mound. It just, it looked like they were really excited. Mob scene would be, you know, I, I, I don't, it just, it wasn't a mob scene. They, they were really happy and excited, but I'm not going with mob scene. But they, they quickly cut, you see one second of Ron Gant sliding on a pair of headsets and he's going to do a post game interview, but he's not in the clubhouse. I don't remember anything about after the game. Um, I, I, I so to, that to me was like the big question and I, I don't remember getting the answer. I'm sure they showed coverage on the, you know, 11 o'clock news or whatever, maybe the next day, but 
I remember that being the major question. How do they celebrate? I'm glad to know that they did because given the fact that they were quickly swept by the Atlanta Braves and there would be no clubhouse celebration of any sort for 15 years, I'm glad the Cincinnati Reds as an organization got one last one in after winning the NLDS against the Dodgers in 95. This is a good chance for us to uh, bring in Jeff Brantley, uh, somebody who was part of that, uh, did, did have the, the, the exuberant celebration for considering it was 10 to one, uh, getting the final out, uh, in the NLDS and, uh, was a part of pitched all three games, uh, in the, in those, in that series, which was a seven, by the way, in case we didn't mention it, a seven, two Reds win in the opener. The, the close game was game two, which there's a lot to dive into there. Brantley got the save, uh, and got out Delino DeShields, current Reds base coach with the final out of game two. And then, uh, game three was the blowout 10 to one. Brantley comes in and finishes off all three of them. Trent, you caught up with Jeff Brantley, the Cowboy, uh, to talk a little bit about the 95 team, and uh, here's that. I'm not the beloved Jeff Brantley, but I do have the beloved Jeff Brantley with me, the closer for the 1995 Reds, the last Reds team, or the last Cincinnati team to advance in the postseason. And uh, JB, you got that final out, and it's it's a we see that all the time, that image of your celebration that Tiger Woods would go on to copy. Um, what, uh, what do you remember from that moment? That's good the way you put that. I like that. <laughs> um, you can use that. You know, we, um, we had a really good team. Um, I, I thought our 94 team was great. I thought our 95 team was good. Um, we had problems with the Braves all year. Um, who but didn't? it was one, it was one of those teams that just happened to, I mean, we just happened to figure out a way to, to click and we did it really about, I don't know, 20 days into the season. And it just, we played good together. There were some really good players on that team. You, you go back and you, you look at, I was watching that game and, you know, or those games and, and, and Reggie Sanders was such a unbelievable talent. Ron Gant has the bounce back year. You have Hal Morris, who's, continually underrated what he was able to do. And then of course, Barry Larkin, who's the MVP. That was, that was a heck of a team. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think Hal Morris always gets kind of lost in the shuffle. Um, and, and I remember, I mean, I, I played with a pretty good first baseman, uh, from the time I got to college to the time I finished with the giants and Will Clark. And I, I really thought that Hal Morris was as good of a hitter, um, as I'd been around. And, wow. and maybe not, maybe not the power kind of guy, but he could just flat out hit. And I remember playing against both Larkin and, um, Hal when, when I was in college and we played them in a regional against, they were at Michigan and I was at Mississippi State and we played a regional against them to go to the college world series. And I remember thinking, God, this is some of the best hitters I've ever seen in my life. You know, and I played with two guys that are were yeah. as good as anybody. Um, but I, I always thought that, that Hal got a little bit of, um, underscore. Uh, I thought Brett Boone was one of those guys that he had that chip on his shoulder and he was going to figure out a way to prove you wrong. And, and he did. That 94 team, you do, you did talk, mention that, that, um, I, I know I've talked to you about this and, and some other people too. Um, but you guys really believed you had as good a chance as anybody to win the World Series in 1994. We did, and there were a lot of very good names on that Montreal club. And you look back and you think, wow, 
they had Pedro Martinez. Well, Pedro Martinez was good then, but he wasn't as good as he was when he became a Red Sox. I mean, he was a good pitcher, but it's not as though he just dominated our team. And they had some great names on that club. I mean, you remember back, I mean, Marquise Grissom, Tim Raines, Cliff Floyd. I mean, they had some guys that could flat out play. Larry Walker. But, yeah, Larry Walker was on that club just starting, you know, just kind of coming into his own. Um, but we had a good team, too. I mean, you got to remember, Kevin Mitchell was playing for the Reds in 94 and didn't get to finish the year. But um, he was having a pretty good year when everything stopped. So, you know, it would it would have been interesting had we been able to play the, the finality of, of that year. Um, and it's always that what if. But everybody kind of gives the edge to the Expos. And, you know, there are a lot of Reds people that take a little umbrage with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh... – yeah, I, I've talked to several people because I love that 94 Expos team. Uh, but I, I know there's a lot of people who, and, and you're rightfully so, the, the Reds, you guys were so good. Um, a lot of those same guys coming over in 95, but 95 had its own uncertainty. Oh, you're, you're exactly right. We started, we started late and it was one of those things very similar to what, um, kind of 2020 is bringing about. We started late and, we had about a two and a half, three week spring training. And I mean, it, it was crazy, Trent, because when they, when they announced that we were going to have, that we were going to start, I mean, you'd get a phone call and say, all right, you know, be in Arizona or be in Florida the next day. And we were like, wow. Oh my gosh. And you just kind of hit the ground running. And I, I don't know that any team was really, um, came out of the gates on fire, but we got it together pretty quickly. And, and I'll say this about both that 94 club and the 95 club. And I, and I think this says something about, uh, really about Barry Larkin more than anything else. And that's the fact that wh- whoever was on that club, he made them feel like they were part of the Reds family. And, and I think mm-hmm. that is the, that's the greatest part of, of leadership besides being a, a great player. And there's no doubt he was a great player. But I, I think the thing that, that Larkin did, and it didn't really matter if you were a pitcher or a position player, but he, he made you feel good about being a red. And there was a, there was a sense of pride that went with that. And I think it just kind of gelled everybody around each other. I know it did with the 90 club and it definitely did for us. You know, Barry was the MVP that year and you, you go back and they're, they're statistically, you can make a case for a lot of different people, but was, yeah, Dante I mean, Bichette you, had a phenomenal year too that year. Barry Bonds, I mean, and Greg Maddox had an all timer. Um, you know, but, but even on the team, Reggie Sanders, Ron Gant had, mm-hmm. you know, arguably better numbers. Is it one of those where you think, because when you go back and, you, and like for me looking at it 25 years and, and, and not remembering all these little things, sometimes we bemoan what we can and can't measure as MVP. Do you think they got it right? The voters? I, I think that they did simply because I got to watch this every day. Yeah. I think that's the, the big thing for me. Um, the, the part that you miss, I think when you're playing with, um, a guy, or the part that you miss when you don't see a guy every day, is that when when he has that clutch hit after maybe an 0 for 6 or an 0 for 7 and, and it looks like he's mailed, you know, he can't hit anything on that day and then he shows up in the 8th or ninth inning and he gets the game-winning hit or, or gets on base. There, there was always – Barry was the guy that everybody could lean on. 
And mm -hmm. even though Gant and Reggie Sanders had great years, and, and you can never take that away from them, um, Pete Shurek had a phenomenal year that year. Yeah. But the, the thing that I think everybody relied on is they knew that in the moment, Barry wasn't going to fail. And, and that's a pretty cool feeling for uh, the leader of your club and for everybody else to kind of get to take a part of it. Yeah, you go back and in game two, you're in LA, and that's the, that's the one close game in that series. And in the eighth inning, uh, he has this long at bat. Um, is it, is it Mariana Duncan on, on first who steals second? And once Duncan's, you see him keep going and he has to run back five, six times because Barry's fouling stuff off. But once you see him on second base, it's like Barry's going to come through, right? It's like a, it's like a light would go on. And I, and I know that's a, a familiar phrase, but it, it kind of made you stand up and take notice and you're on the team. You just expected it to happen. And it really wasn't that way with any other hitter except for Larkin. Huh. Huh. That's, uh, that's interesting. And, and, and kind of to backtrack, you said in 95, how long was your spring training in 95? I think we got, I don't think we got quite to three weeks. I think it was somewhere between two and a half and three. And, and I think that, you know, we were, we were told basically, Trent, just to keep everything together. I mean, keep uh -huh. yourself ready. Um, you could be called to camp at any moment and then time kind of wore on and wore on. And, you know, we're getting later and later and we're not in camp. And all of a sudden you get the call and you're kind of pressed to get ready in a hurry. That sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, that's going to happen this year. You can book it. How, I mean, how much spring training do you think people need? And of course you were different because your pitchers are different than hitters. Relievers are different than starters. But, but how much, how much do you feel is ideal? I think hitters and position players and relievers, as long as everybody's healthy, I, mm -hmm. I think you can be ready in less than three weeks. I think the whole issue with spring training is trying to get starters ready without having to push them beyond what their comfort zone is. And you and I both well know when you get to spring training every year, somebody's got a little bit of a nagging elbow issue or a shoulder issue or maybe a rib cage problem. And you try to, instead of trying to push them forward to get ready for April 1st or March 31st, you say, all right, we're going to give him seven or eight days. He's going to miss a start, uh, get some treatment, and then he'll come back. And you don't have to worry about it so much. This year is not going to be like that. you got to hit the ground running. This is a sprint. And it'll be a sprint not only from the time we get into spring training, but from the time you hit spring training until the time that the playoffs roll around, it will be a sprint. Games will be managed different. They'll be played differently. This is not going to be that 162. Uh, we're not, yeah. we're not running four or five times around the track. We're running a 50 yard dash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I guess we've seen that too in, in, in past years. Um, and that, that was something that was magnified watching these games. Like, they throw Ramon Martinez. Tommy Lasorda throws Ramon Martinez. Hideo Nomo's out there in like the sixth throwing 77. He's got nothing left. And, and they don't even, he doesn't even pinch hit for him. You know, these days you, you can get the starter. I mean, we don't even blink an eye if he gets pulled in the third in a postseason game. Well, I think when you look back quite a few years, you look back to that Kansas City Royals club that had those three hammers right at the end of the ball game. 
Mm-hmm. And they, they basically, you know, even though the game was kind of feathering towards that a little bit, it really, it really wasn't put into championship material until you saw that happen. And, and Ned Yost, I mean, he had three, basically three closers at the end of the ball game. So when you got to the six, the game was over. And we've never really seen that before. We've seen maybe a, a good setup guy and a good closer. And maybe you could, you could manipulate, uh, two and a third or two and two thirds, but rarely did you see two guys going three innings and doing it on a regular basis. Those guys just, I mean, they were automatic. Yeah. Kind of like a young Jeff Brantley there pitching the ninth <laughs> inning in all three of those games. Hey, no, I had but the, I mean, I had the greatest setup man of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know that, I know that Mike Jackson's numbers at that point did not look um, that great because he really had, he really had some elbow struggles at the beginning of the year. But my years in Cincinnati, I had Mike Jackson in, um, 95 and then I had Jeff Shaw in 96. That makes the closer's job like a cakewalk. I mean, those guys are straight studs. <laughs> you know, is it different? I mean, because you were pitching in those, maybe it's in the regular season you hear all this time about, uh, and we've seen it like the closers don't like to come in in those situations where they're up big and you're up big in two of those games. Is it a little bit different just because it is the playoffs? So you, you feel that a little bit more than maybe you would in a seven nothing game in, in, in August. It's funny you mentioned that Trent because Davey, Davey Johnson, our manager that year, he and I used to go back and forth about me. I needed regular work. I, I didn't mm-hmm. need to, to pitch like a closer where you come in and you just pitch when it's save time. I, I couldn't do that because I, my stuff was not good enough to not, to be in a ball game and not be sharp. So I didn't want any more than two days off. If I had two days off the third day, I needed to pitch and I didn't care when it was. I just needed to pitch. And he didn't like that because he was afraid that if he pitched me in a ball game that was 10 to two and then we ran on a four game winning streak and he needed me for four games in a row, then he felt like he couldn't use me because it would be five days in a row. And I just, finally, we just got to a point where I said, you pitch me as much as you want to pitch me. I don't care. And, and then that just kind of eliminated, you know, kind of that thought in the back of his head, you know, and he had some different rules with his relievers. If he got you up three times, he was going to put you in the game. If he didn't put you in the game, then he wasn't going to use you the next day. And, it just made it, you know, I wasn't used to that. I I wanted to be able to pitch every day and try to stay sharp. And it was a different thing for, for Davey, but we did get that ironed out towards the end of the year. Davey was in such a weird position where he's this lame duck. How aware of you of this were you guys? How much did it, how, how what effect did that have on you guys? I, I don't know that it had much Trent. I, I think that, Everyone knew that Marge didn't like Davey. I mean, we knew that. Um, but we also knew that in our clubhouse, he's one of the best managers we'd ever played for. I mean, for most of us. I mean, we loved him. Uh, there was there was nothing that Davey didn't shoot you straight with. I mean, there was never a time that you couldn't go in the office and say, look, this is happening, this, this, and this. And he'd tell you exactly how to feel about it or exactly how he felt about it. And then it all worked out. I mean, he had some some major rough patches with Brett Boone. I, I can remember he used to get on Brett about throwing his stuff when he'd come back into the dugout and just basically pitching a tantrum. 
And I can remember Brett coming back in. He slammed his helmet and it came off, hit Davey in the back of the head. And I guess probably for the next, I think it had to be five days. He didn't put him in the lineup. And Boone, in the beginning, didn't say anything. He was just, you know, mad at the world, but he didn't say anything to Davey. He was just kind of pouting. Well, by the time you get to the fifth day, he's like, hey, you know, what's going on here? And we're like, you got to go talk to him, man. He ain't going to put you in there until you go talk to him. And once he did, I mean, it was like a whole different Brett Boone. I mean, the guy was just crushing. He was like a man on a mission. It's it's interesting. Like People ask me about managers all the time, and I say, I have no – a manager's job to me, what we see from, from press level is – is, is like 10, 15, 20% at best, maybe. Yeah. That other yeah. 80 that we don't see, 80 to 90 that we don't see, that's really what a manager does, right? I, I totally agree with you. The, the in-game management, um, the moves that you make, the, the relievers you bring in, maybe the, um, the pinch hitter in a certain spot, making a swap here, or there, a hit and run, bunt, whatever it may be. To me, those are just kind of little things because, Everybody that has been in the game knows when to bunt or when to hit and run or, or those kinds of things for the most part. The problem that you have is if you're a manager and you've got a very young club or you've got a very old club, you, you're managing people, you're managing personalities. And even though we might be all athletes, just like you might all work for FedEx, I mean, everybody's got family, they've got problems, they've got issues. And those are things that a baseball manager, not only does he have to take care of, he's got to massage them a little bit. Some guys he's got to kick in the pants. But the thing about it is you have to do it in public. And, I mean, that makes for some rough interviews after a ball game sometimes when you don't put a pitcher in a ball game when he's supposed to be or maybe you didn't start a guy and you're trying to cover for him so you don't embarrass him. I mean, it, it's I can't imagine doing that. It makes it tough. Yeah. And, and you played for all sorts of different managers. You played for Roger Craig. You played for Tony LaRussa. I mean, Terry Francona. Um, so many Dusty different Baker. great Dusty Baker. Man, you played for some great, great managers. <laughs> what, I, what is I, the common theme? I, I think that the common theme is for, for the guys that were really good is you try to establish some semblance of rapport, whether it be a, a friendship. Um, some, some managers, Tony was one of those guys that just kind of liked to just a little jab, you know, when he, instead of having a, an in-depth conversation, it would be more of a jab, you know, like, what are you doing? You know, just different kind of, you know, like joking around kind of stuff. And then Roger Craig was one of those guys that was always trying to build you up every day, trying to build with, with words. I mean, he'd, he'd tell you how good you were, how great you, no matter what happened the day before, that's just how he handled his players. And Dusty not, Dusty was not as much, um, words, even though Dusty would really build up guys with words, but Dusty liked to do things for you. Where you mm-hmm. felt like, man, this guy really likes this. He's a good dude. Well, he might bring you a bottle of wine. I, I can remember when we were in San Francisco, and I had no idea that this even existed in San Francisco. But being a Southern kid, he came to the ballpark. He had collard greens. He had black-eyed peas. And he'd found okra. 
and they all came from a South San Francisco market. And I'm thinking, where did you get this? Somebody mail it to you? He said, no. He goes, I knew you liked it. He goes, I brought it. That way you guys can have it when you get back to the house. And I thought, this is one cool dude. But he did that for everybody in their own unique way. And I, and I think that's what, that's what makes a manager or makes a player really want to lay it on the line for a manager. And, and I mean, I guess Davey's success just everywhere he was, it kind of, it, it shows that, that, that he had his own way and it was very successful. Yeah. Davey, Davey was just always shot from, I mean, he, he was a straight shooter. There was never a, um, you know, he was never going to tell you, you know, blow smoke and say, Oh, you pitch great. No, he's going to tell you pitch terrible. You better get better. I mean, he, he was just, it's just the way he was. I mean, if you did good, he'd tell you, you did good. If you stunk, he'd tell you, you stunk, but you knew where you sat. There was no in between with Davey and that's what made it great. Yeah. That's, huh. That is, uh, that's really, that's really kind of cool that, and, and you watch and it's just so weird. Like, cause during the broadcast, they're talking about he, he, he could win it. They, he could win it all and it still probably wouldn't matter. Yeah. I, I don't think that he was going to be the manager of the 96 <laughs> Reds. <laughs> we won the World Series. He was going to manage somewhere else, but it wasn't going to be Cincinnati. That was the first year of the, ex, of the division series, uh, besides, of course, 81. But, um, what, what were kind of the unknowns? Cause you guys, this was, a first you nobody actually knew what they were getting into or this or did you did you feel like you it was just going to be whatever well i i don't think anyone had ever been involved in just playing a a three-game series i mean that was the that was more the the unknown part you know and you're kind of you're kind of thinking our best of five series i guess i should say our game our series was three games but um you you just kind of thought well you got to got to slam the accelerator to the floor. Everybody's got to play as hard as they can, do what you got to do. And if that meant that we were bringing in Mike Jackson in the sixth inning and he was pitching sixth and seventh and I was pitching eighth and ninth, and that's what we did. If we had to bunt in the first inning to get a run on the board, well, then that's what we did. But you just knew that you wanted to get, you wanted to be the team that was comfortable in a lead rather than a team that was behind. So there was a sense of urgency from pitch number one. Um, was, well, you win the first two games that, that first inning in, in, in uh, game one, you guys jump on them. What, what did that do? I think that if you, if you look back to the playoffs from 1990, um, and that was, that was the last time that the Reds were there before our club. And you think to yourself, okay, how did the Reds beat the big machine from Oakland? I mean, they were the Bash brothers. I mean, those guys were loaded to the gills with everything that they could get in their systems. But the Reds wiped them out, killed them, because they took the fight to the A's. And it goes back to my comments earlier when you and I were talking. There were several guys that were on that 90s club that were still on our team at that point in 95. And that was the mantra. Do not let them breathe. 
suffocate them. Get on them early and hit them and don't let up. And that's what we did. Benito Santiago with the huge home run. Um, <laughs> it was one of those things watching those games. It was like, <laughs> and, and not to bag on the guy. He's a Hall of Famer, but like the difference behind the plate between Benito Santiago and Mike Piazza was, was, was pretty vast. Santiago was about as good a catcher as it came. Um, as far as calling ball games and just the way that he would receive the ball. Now, granted, in, as he, as he got older, it was more difficult for him to get in that almost like a, a scissor cross setup mm-hmm. that he would get down so low. But what he did is he made himself small and made the mitt big. And I, I know that's kind of a weird thing for everybody to understand, but when you're, when you're a pitcher, you, you don't want to see the catcher. You want to see the mitt. And I think that's what he did well. That was one thing that Gary Carter, when I got to throw to him in San Francisco, I remember thinking, this is a big dude, but I can't see him. All I can see is mitt. And so it, it helps you as a, as a pitcher to really concentrate on just getting the ball to the right spot. And Santiago was, man, he was good. He was really good at that. Yeah. I mean, and then with, with Piazza, one, one of the things is he wasn't great about throwing out runners and you guys, again, put the pedal to the metal, not, not just with the hits and, and all that, but you guys were running all the time. Yeah. We, um, it, it was interesting and you can't run if you don't have speed. I mean, Trent, let's, let's be honest with that. Uh, and we had speed and the guys that the guy, I mean, I remember we got, um, Darren Lewis, we got Dave Burba, Mark Portugal kind of towards the end of the season. We had Dion. I mean, if there was a point where a team had some speed and we already had Reggie Sanders, Barry Larkin and Mark Lewis, who played third base along with Jeff Branson, those guys could run and they ran at will. And Davey was one of those guys that he just said, look, you think you can steal? You go. I'll tell you when to stop. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you guys go up and you're winning. Was there a discussion? I remember this because, again, I'm a little younger. So I remember when the wild card came in, people said, well, how are you going to celebrate? Was there questions about that in 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 95? Because of, we're not going to the World Series. We're just going to the next thing. Um, were, was there any... I don't know, thought or discussion about how do we celebrate this? Are we celebrating or, or, or is it just another step? I, I think there were some conversations in our locker room, but I, I think what kind of the older guys came to the, to the, the basis is that look, there are several guys that are on this club that have never been in the playoffs. They've never been in a playoff atmosphere. And if you don't celebrate, then you're, you're taking it away from them. So you have to be able to um, at least have some joy when you win the ball game or you win the series, because if you don't, then it, it's a lasting effect and it may take over. It may take into the next round. So you have to be happy and excited and celebrate what you've just done. And I, I think we did that. Kind of reminds me of 2013 with uh, when the Reds kind of get that into that wild card spot. Yeah. And even 12 because of was 12 was with Dusty. He was gone when, when they clenched. Yes. With, I think uh, that's with right. The heart. Yeah. With the heart issue. 
and, and it seems like, and so it was subdued and they didn't have that big celebration and then didn't get to get a celebration. Yeah. And I, I think that in, in my mind and, and granted, you know me, I'm, I'm a, I'm an over celebrator. I, I just, <laughs> just, that's just how I, I mean, that's how I am. I mean, every moment that something good happens, I, I want it to, I want everybody to feel good about it. And I think that. I think that by doing that, it gives you some momentum moving into the next round. I think that being subdued and kind of like, oh, okay, well, let, let's do this like Babe Ruth did. Um, that, that doesn't really work today. And it, it, it really doesn't work when you're getting into a playoff atmosphere because it's not just about talent at that point. It's about momentum. And I think when you can create a mental momentum, it's your asset. There, there was only one close game. Um, you guys were, I guess, ahead three uh, two in the in the ninth of game two. Score two more to go up five two. Right. Uh, um, Eric Karros. And you, <laughs> I wasn't going to bring up Eric Karros, but man, <laughs> he 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 got that one pretty good. Well, I, as I told you before, there's a little story to that. And, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and I don't know that he really knew this about me, but it, it's just the way that I pitched. If the game was within one run and I knew a home run would beat me, then there was a different way that I pitched. If I had room to breathe, then you were going to see fastballs all over the place, up, down, in, out, but not not get the vision of a breaking ball because my, my thought process at that point is I never had any kind of plus stuff ever. There, there was never a point where I could tell a guy I'm throwing you this and you can't hit it. I had to fool him. I had to be able to mix it up, move it in and out, make him think he was going to get one pitch and yet throw him another. So the less that they could see my split and my breaking ball, the better for me. And when Karras came to the plate, he was going to see nothing but fastballs because if he hit it into the orbit, and he did, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And that was just one of those things that, you know, not everybody understands that. But in order to get people out regularly that you see every day or all the time, sometimes you got to switch it up when you're a pitcher like I. Right. And you don't want them to be able to start seeing that splitty well. No, I I just don't want them to see the – the breaking balls and the splits because you just don't know how many times you're going to have to face this guy or when's the next time I'm going to have to face this guy when I have to strike him out and be able to surprise him with a breaking ball with a runner at third and one out. That's when the strikeouts matter. Right. And then it becomes 5-4. You get Tim Wallach to pop up and then Delino to Shields. (laughs) Baseball is such a strange, like funny, small world. That now you're around Bop all the time. Oh yeah, and and we had we had played against each other. I mean, our our careers just kind of mirrored each other. I mean, we were always on the opposite ends of of each other. He was at the plate and I was on the mound. Um, and if I recall correctly, that might have been one of the longest at bats ever. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he fouled off pitch after pitch after pitch, and he just you know I got him. It just was one of those things. And then the next night, or well, you guys come back to Cincinnati and it, it, it just, 
you take an early lead and that's, that's everything. This is a yeah. team. You win and now you know it's the Braves. Yeah, that was the, that was the big issue for us. We had, a, we had a pretty good idea we were going to play the Braves anyway. Um, you know, they had that three headed monster with Glavin, Smoltz and, and Maddox and, you know, they, they just shut people down. And even though a lot of our success as a club that year was via the offense, we just had a real hard time generating anything against the Braves. And I mean, they just mopped the floor with us. I mean, they were, they were on their game and we weren't on ours. And, and, and then, I mean, they, they did the same thing to a really good Cleveland team as well. Yeah. They, I mean, when you have great pitching and guys are hitting their spots and they're making pitches, I don't care if you send up a Hall of Fame lineup with a bat. They're just not going to get it done. And those guys, those three guys, man, they were all over their game. If if there was any question mark, it was going to be at the end of the ball game. But by that point, it really didn't matter a whole lot. Yeah, I guess the last one, it, it does kind of put it in perspective that uh, a third of the lineup for the Dodgers in those games, their kids are now in the big leagues. Yeah. <laughs> Wallach, Mondesi, and DeShields. Yeah, that was a, quite the veteran lineup. And, and I think the Dodgers really thought they were just going to walk all over us. I, I really do. Really? Um, yeah. Because they just had, they had a lot of guys that had been around and had played. And, you know, I, I guess that's the Dodger mentality, but it, it did not quite work that way. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate your time. That was, it was really fun, fascinating stuff. Uh, man, what, uh, what a team though. What a team. Yeah. It was, um, when you look back at some of the guys that didn't even really get to play, I mean, they had some pretty good careers in the big leagues after a while. You know, we had mm-hmm. some young guys that could play a little bit. Um, we made it work. Um, you know, Hector Carrasco was supposed to be the guy that was closing ball games that year, but he had great stuff. He had like closer stuff like we see now. I mean, he could throw the ball almost a hundred miles an hour, but he just couldn't, he couldn't throw the ball over the plate and you just couldn't trust him at the end of the ball game. So in the beginning of the season, he put together a great year. And then by the time he started having some issues where command became even more so of a problem, that's right when Mike Jackson came back. So it, everything really fell into, to line for us on that, on that bullpen side. Wow. Oh man, Chuck McElroy was there too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look at He's, he was our lone lefty for the longest time down there. <laughs> that, uh, and, and, and I guess career, you didn't want him facing any righties. He was just a lefty guy. Well, and, uh, David Wells came in late too. Speaking of characters. Yeah. We had David Wells. I can remember him coming to our club and all of us, you know, we didn't know how to take this guy. I mean, nobody really knew him and. Mm-hmm. I remember um, Bernie Stowe put him in the locker right next to mine. And, of course, you know, me being the Southern boy, I was gonna, I'm going to go over and welcome him to the team. And he sits down. He's got his head down looking at his shoes. And I said, hey, David, uh, Jeff Brantley. I said, man, we're really glad to have you here. And he has those, um, you know, like those country teeth that you get like at Cracker Barrel. Mm-hmm. He had those in his mouth when he came in the locker room. So he was waiting on somebody to come up. And as soon as I said, 
you know, Jeff Bradley, nice to have you here. He goes, hey, and I jumped back. I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, it just, he had me hook, line, and sinker. And so, you know, as with that club, it just kind of fell right on in line. I mean, it, it was just a great team. I mean, the white guys went to the black bars, the black guys went to the white bars, and we all went together. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. And in those ice cream uh, man hats, too. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> That's the one they keep showing over and over. And you always look like, wait, what, what couldn't we do on the road? So I had a better looking hat, better looking uniform. You know, those white hats for a pitcher were the greatest thing ever. And that oh, yeah. other, other teams bitched and moaned because you had a white hat. You notice that doesn't happen anymore. No. They couldn't see the ball. They couldn't see the ball coming out. It it was great for us. We loved it. <laughs> so bring back the white hats for the Reds. You got it. I mean, can you imagine having, especially if you think about it at Riverfront, everything was green. And then you've mm-hmm. got the white hat on the mound. You've got another white hat in center field. And if Larkin was playing up the middle, you got three white objects that you're looking at trying to pick up a white ball. Advantage Reds. <laughs> yeah. And can you imagine Luis Castillo in a white hat? Oh, man. They might not ever get a hit. <laughs> <laughs> Best changeup I've ever seen. Whew. Wow. That's saying something because you've seen a couple. I've seen some good ones, but not somebody that could throw it six or seven times in a row and make people look like that. So it's almost a version of a screwball, if you think about it, the way he throws. Yes. It's just tough for guys to pick up. It's a very odd-looking spin on the pitch. Yeah, you explained that to me uh, a, a while ago, and that's always kind of now how I look at it. It is kind of like a screwball. And and then it was something that, that, that Trevor Bauer was talking to me about how – so often it's, it's, you know, he was talking about, um, I forget which one he was talking about is the Astros and, and it's like those outlier pitches because you see so many changeups, you can know it's a changeup, but you're expecting right. after all something this rep- repetition, you're expecting a traditional changeup. And when it does something just a little bit different, that's a lot different. Yeah. I, I think, and Dusty used to talk about this all the time because I thought Dusty was a, a great hitting coach. He used to talk about if you get up there and you're looking for the local, if you're looking for a breaking ball or you're looking for a changeup or a curve, something that's a secondary pitch, and he throws you a fastball at 85, you're done. So imagine if it comes in at 95 because you can't react. You freeze. You Mm -hmm. always hit off the fastball, and then you can kind of foul off the breaking ball. Well, there's there's not a whole lot of people that are ever – especially with the semi-wildness of Castillo, they are never going to go up there and sit on a changeup. Because if he happens to uncork one that's up and in, you're dead. It's not like you're going to get hit. You're dead. You know, okay, last one I got this. I'm, I'm going to go back to 95. I, I do this every spring, and I didn't get to do it this year because, well, you know. Yeah. I always ask the catchers, what's the nastiest pitch on a team? And I, the last last year I just said non-Castillo changeup. Um, category because that's too easy. On that 95 Reds team, what was the pitch that you just said, oh, man, I wish I had that? Jose Rios slider or Mike Jackson yeah. slider. The the slider, I just I could never do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I threw a breaking ball, but it was more of a slurve. 
And I only had one point in my career where I had a slider and I had it for about maybe a week and I wanted to throw it every pitch. I mean, that's, that's, that's how, that's how good those things are because when you can spot them, you can't hit it, mm-hmm. but it's a release point. And the way my fingers are, my index finger is much shorter than my middle finger. So I just couldn't get that done with that index finger to make that ball cut like that. It just didn't work. And so my breaking ball looked more like a slurve than it did a slider. And then Mike Jackson and Jose Rio just got that little uh, dot. Mike Jackson's slider was basically a two-seamer that he cut. So he could he could run the ball in on righties and slide the ball away. And it just it, it just made him so good. So good. And same thing for Rio. But Rio could throw hit Rio's slider went straight down. It didn't break right to left. It went straight down. So he could throw it on the outside corner to a righty. He could throw it on the inside corner to a righty, which he really didn't. But if you think about it from a left-handed hitter standpoint, if the ball starts off the plate and it just drops straight down, you freeze. You you can't hit it. You can't swing. It's a ball. Oh. JB, thank you so much for your time. I, Anytime, bro. You know, I it's it's always a pleasure, and um, this is why you are beloved. And uh, just talking, going down. These are fun games. Uh, it's, it's just fun to 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 go back to these games that we all saw from different perspectives, and nobody had a better perspective on the '95 NLDS than the guy who finished off all three games. Well, I appreciate it, buddy. You call me anytime. All right. Hopefully hey, I, thanks, hopefully man. I get to see you in person pretty soon. I sure hope so. I can't wait. All right. Take care. Thank you. All right. Great to hear from, uh, from Cowboy talking about 95. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think a a special team for a lot of those guys to, to be a part of. I had like a quick break and and I'll ask you, if you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. Basically a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment as soon as possible. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit and you'll hear back from a u.s licensed physician within 24 hours if the doctor decides that treatment's right for you roman's pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping you also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan with roman there are no commitments you cancel anytime so if you're struggling with ed go to getroman.com slash w-a-r-p for a free online visit and free two-day shipping it's get roman dot com slash WARP for a free online visit and free two day shipping. I want to just kind of run through some topics. Uh, and I'm just curious, uh, to hear your, some of your thoughts. Um, let's talk uniforms. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I'll just draw, I'll no. just put it out there. Open the floor. Do you like the pinstripes, the sleeveless pin? Stripes, so we just we just we just did um, the piece two weeks ago about different uniforms in Cincinnati sports history. 
And with a lot to choose from, I listed this era as my least favorite in all of Cincinnati sports. Now, think of what that encompasses. A bunch of bad Bengals uniforms, some really unfortunate UC basketball looks, FC Cincinnati, like all soccer teams, running around with a billboard on their chest, of various incarnations of the Reds uniform, and this topped off by the white hats. You have a vest, you have pinstripes, and you have a white hat. That's never a good combination. Now, the, the road grays that year were slightly less unforgivable, but these are, for my money, they wore these from 93 through 98. They had a modified look at this version of this in 99. This is easily my least favorite look in all of Cincinnati sports. This, it's, it's so unfortunate that a team that I like so much had to look so ugly in those uniforms. And the only thing I don't like about watching specifically game three is how bad they looked. I, they, they don't look good. The only, the saving grace of, of the road uniforms is they have the right hat. Yeah. Correct. Correct. The hat no is the problem. Drop black. The hat is significant. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that uniform's not great, but it's not terrible if you have a red hat. Correct. I mean, well, I, I think the home ones are bad, but they're less bad if you right, have the red hat. There's great. something else about this that I noticed, and maybe, uh, C. Trent could answer this, or, or maybe we could oh. find a uniform, like a Paul Lucas type. Um, when did they stop wearing jackets with their names on the back? That's a great question. Because that was a staple of my youth. And so it, in kind of preparation for this, I'm going through like, all right, some of the things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about looks. So guys are in the dugout. I'm like, I wonder if as late as 1995, uh, players had names on the back of their jackets and sure enough, they did. I'm interested in knowing when the la when did they do away with names on the backs of their jackets? Cause that was a thing throughout all of my youth, all of my adolescence, but it stopped and I'm guessing it stopped. Not, not that much, you know, there, not, not so much after I'm wording this poorly, it stopped pretty close to 1995. It's closer to 1995 than 2010, but I want to know when we will find this out. I should uh, call Rick Stowe. We, we will. Yeah, exactly. We, we need to dive into that. Uh, are, are pitchers still wearing the big heavy jackets when they run the bases? If I switch, am I just? Has it been so long since I've watched it's baseball? Hoodies. That it's hoodies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like the giant jacket, like the big button down, like puffy. Which, by the way, uh, you were talking about David Wells earlier. How about the fact he legs out an infield single and they, and they compliment his speed at one point? I, I was stunned. I was truly stunned. You would also get the, the weird aesthetic back then of the pitcher would put the jacket on, but only on his pitching arm. Yeah. So yes. he, would, he would be running the bases looking like you ever seen a really drunk dude try to put on a coat? That's what a pitcher running the bases would look like. It's like, why can't you just look? It's, it's either 105 degrees in July and you don't need the coat on your right arm or just put the damn coat on your whole body and suck it up and try to break up a double play. There's no way it's easier with one arm off. Correct. There's no way. No way. And there's no way somebody's like, you know what would look cool is if you put half the jacket on. I, I don't know. We did a lot of stuff that we thought looked cool that. In retrospect, not. That is that is true. Um, t I want to talk about TV ads real quick. The lack oh, of them. Yeah. Well, first of all, not just t the ads or whatever. Which, by the way, 
forgot how important Beechwood aged was to Budweiser. Like <laughs> they really were emphasizing that is important. You need to know how they age it. Uh, but the, la- the lack of ads in the stadiums is so striking when you watch it compared to today. The lack of advertising for almost anything. Yeah. Uh, is startling. There's nothing behind the only thing behind home plate at Chavez Ravine is a very jaunty man in a like fedora hat. Oh yeah. Who is, who is a scout apparently or running the radar gun. He stands up. He's, I mean, he is in the Pat Sajak seats. Like, and he just, he stands up. He shoots, he shoots the speed of the pitch. He casually writes it down in his little notebook and he does it again the whole time in the most expensive seats that are normally now covered by a million ads or whatever. There's just this, this casual dude in a hat who ha- hangs out back there and, and, and writes down how fast the pitches work. So the, yeah, you're right. The, the, the two things I notice, A, there are a couple of times during this series <clears throat> where there's an, a pitching change and they don't break away. Like right. they make like a network promo, like, Hey, you know, get ready for Monday night football coming up, but they don't break away for a commercial. Like the announcers just keep talking. Um, also when they show a wide view of Riverfront Stadium, which in 1995 is still what it was called. Uh, can you imagine if at Great American Ballpark, um, for, you know, the season would start and on opening day, there in like left center field was a gigantic billboard for Marlboro cigarettes. <laughs> but there it is in 1995. If you look there, you know, there's, there's the, the big Budweiser advertisement between the video board and uh, the scoreboard. And then there it is to the right, Marlboro. You know Marge approved. <laughs> but it's funny because in, in during game three, they talk about, Hey, you know, there's, there's a ballot initiative coming up, uh, like within a month because election day was coming up. There's a ballot initiative where the Reds and Bengals could get new stadiums. And Tim McCarver's like, place is 25 years old. Why are we getting rid of a 25 year old park? It doesn't make any sense. And in 1995, Riverfront Stadium was a pit. I mean, like, I remember at the time yeah. going, yes. I, I need as much as I love the idea of buying blue seats, green seats, but yeah, I mean, it was, that was a conversation while that series was taking place. And that yet there were folks who were like, who changes out of ballpark after 25 years? And yeah. lo and behold, seven years later, yeah. we finally got rid of Riverfront. Well, and, and now, like, if you think about it, the third oldest park in the National League, do you know this one? This is, no. Do you know this? It would be what do you, what do you think is the... Wrigley and Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. Wrigley, yeah. Uh, PNC. No. Coors Field. Coors. Wow. Yeah, wow. Wow. And that was opened in uh in nineteen ninety five, so it's twenty five years old. Right. Wow. I'm glad you mentioned that because during the game, they're cutting over to the Blake Street bombers mid game. Like so they didn't know what oh, to yeah. do. They did not know what to do with this NLDS round. So they play all four games at the same time. They're playing all of them at the same time. Every other game is more entertaining than the, the Reds game. Yeah. Oh, how about <laughs> like how every un- time you're about, like, man, we really should yeah. be watching that game. How about how unenthused everyone in LA was with the, with those baseball games? Like it felt like 
mid-June Wednesday night Dodgers Reds. I mean, there was hardly, I'm like, wait, where's the playoff intensity? Where's anything? It was just, it was, there was no atmosphere there. It didn't help that the Reds, you know, took the wind out of their sails immediately, but it was just so wild. And then they cut over and it's, it's louder and these, but they're, they're literally showing live, not highlights, just like, a couple of at bats from other games while your game is just in a smaller box in the corner with no sound. I would be livid. I would be game livid if I was ends. trying to watch my game. Game one ends and they're showing another game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's two things we have to talk about with that. One has much more to do with Los Angeles, but this was a really sort of ugly chapter in baseball television history they called it the baseball network yeah so what they did is you know for years when we were kids you would watch on nbc the saturday game of the week monday night baseball and abc and then occasionally you know they'd throw a game during the pennant races on a sunday or nbc would show a game on a friday but that was it and then in 90 cbs gets it cbs gets exclusive rights to the postseason and they would carry the saturday game of the week the ratings weren't good and they ended up shrinking the game of the week schedule where you would basically get a handful of games on Saturdays on CBS in 92 and 93 and the postseason. So there was very little over the air baseball. So when that deal expired, they created the baseball network, which was basically we're going to have, we're going to have one game where we send our main announcers, but what we're going to do is uh, we're going to, we're basically going to buy the time. And we're going to show in the part of the country where we're going to show the Cubs game, you're going to get the Cubs announcers. It was, it's, it's literally the dumbest thing of all time. So 94, we never get to the postseason. So this was a two year deal. So 95, we do get to the postseason. And I think the postseason starts and people forgot because we didn't have the playoffs in 94, how stupid this arrangement was going to be. So I was going to the University of Dayton at the time. Obviously a ton of Reds fans, but huge concentration of kids from Cleveland for the first time in since the fifties, the Indians are in the playoffs and they had this great team ran away with the division. And I remember the playoffs starting and there were kids who liked the Indians, by the way, this is mere weeks before the Browns announced they're moving to Baltimore. So it's a great amount of uh, fun had at their expense, but the Indians are finally in the playoffs and yet they couldn't watch the games because in Southwest Ohio, you're going to see the Reds. And people were like, well, wait a minute. Isn't there a game at 1 o'clock? Nope, they're all at 8 o'clock Eastern time, all four games. It's one of the dumbest things they've ever done. During that Reds-Dodgers, those first two games, the the uh, the uh, Mariners and Yankees play like a 15-inning game. And Jim Leyritz wins it with a home run. And most of the game wasn't seen in much of the country because, you know, they're watching the Braves and Rockies or the Reds and Dodgers or, you know, whatever. It's, it's one of the, this, to me, the dumbest chapters where they, they made the sport less accessible. They took the games that everybody wants to see and decided that much of the country couldn't see them. It's one of the dumbest. Now they rectified it. And by 96, the playoffs at least were back to the way they used to be. But if, if you, if, even if you like go to the baseball network Wikipedia page and just read about it, you're going to go, huh? They thought this was the right way to do it. And they did it for almost two full seasons. And it remains one of the dumbest chapters in the history of baseball. Well, just wait. They can always type, top themselves. It's baseball. <laughs> That's very, very true. I want to. I want to talk about. Uh, unless you guys have anything else on t- the TV broadcast, I, I just wanted to do the one I wrote down 
that, that really just got me and, and not just, uh, Joe Morgan talking about how much he was looking forward to must see TV Thursday. Cause you know, yeah. Joe Morgan, I'm guessing was a big, uh, Carolina in the city fan. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably there is like guy a, too. there is a Jag commercial yeah. with special guest star Oliver North. And it was just yes. like, like this whole commercial was just like, uh, I, I was a gog. It was so bad. Um, but yeah, so no, it was just the Jag with special guest star Oliver North that, that really got me. What, what I, well, I was going to ask, since you mentioned LA for those first two games, where do we slide in talking about the OJ Simpson verdict happening the same day of game? Oh, right. So they, they did, I mean, they mention it. In like right the, at the like, top. It, well, yeah, at the top, but then not well, really. Well, they glued to it. Sorry. There's, there's a dateline. Like there's a dateline after the game and they're like, talk, they'll talk about the case of the century. And like after that's really <laughs> like, that's the, that and the fact that there's like nobody really at the game for the first four innings. So Gumble and Morgan come on and they're like, a lot happening here in LA today. And I even jotted this down. Gumble refers to the Reds Dodgers game as quote, a pleasant alternative. Yes. And again, you talk about something that I'll, I'll never forget. This was my 18th birthday. So OJ is acquitted and all anybody wants to do is like, I'm sure around the country watch, and this is, you know, not everybody had cable. It's kind of pre-internet. So I'm sure CBS and ABC were like wall to wall OJ verdict. And you got to think the people at NBC were like, great. We have four baseball games in this baseball network thing. And yet all anybody wants to talk about is OJ and instead, we're going to have this pitching matchup between, you know, Pete Shurik and Ramon Martinez. Yay <laughs> us. But it's With special guest star Oliver North. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. It is, it is truly wild. By the way, I, I just have to throw this in here. At, at one point, James Brown faxes the booth. Like, <laughs> did you catch that? No. Like, we have a, we just got a fax from James Brown who says he's insulted. And I was like, wait, where did James Brown get their fax number? He's faxing the booth. What is he insulted about? They never expounded on it. I don't know if it was the godfather of soul or if it was the guy from NFL on CBS. Like, I don't know. All I know was a James Brown faxed the booth and he was insulted and they never went back to it. And they don't like yuck it up either. Like, no. You don't get the sense that it's like an inside joke and they're like, ha, 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 that James Brown. Like, no. You could tell like a stage manager is like, hey, man, James Brown faxed us. And Gumble's like, yep, uh, okay, James Brown faxed us. That's cool. Back to the action. That's one of the most <laughs> bizarre exchanges there is. No, it really is. I wanted to see the facts. Like, I wanted to know so much more about this fax. And I guess it has to be like the Dodger Stadium uh national – TV network booth that it's the facts. I mean, that line is there. It's not like yeah. somebody's personal facts. It's not like he has Joe Morgan's personal fax machine that Joe like <laughs> trounces around it's the country with he travels with him on the road. <laughs> <laughs> the smart faxes before smartphones. Um. <laughs> oh man. It was, it was, it was totally fantastic. Uh, I, I want to kind of get more into the actual baseball here for a second. Uh, what MVP of the series for you? Who who would it be? 
Larkin? I think you can – I mean, you certainly obviously can make an argument for that. He steals four bags. He totally like – he totally gets in Hideo Nomo's head when Ron Gant hits a two-run bomb off of him in game three. Game, um, game two, the only game that really matters, he yeah. kind of he, – he gets the – didn't he have the go-ahead hit? He did. He did have RBI the go-ahead hit back when that was to make thing. it three to two late in that game. Um, And, you know, he plays solid. I will, I will say this. Yeah. Mariano Duncan – Comes yeah. in and plays massive at the end of game two, the only close. And really, when you, when you look at, you know, the Reds come out and win game one, obviously, but if the Dodgers still come back and win that game two where Eric Carlos hits a couple of massive bombs, including one off Jeff Brantley. Um, you know, that if they win that, I mean, there's a whole different dynamic coming back to Cincinnati. There's a lot more work to do. Um, Duncan comes in and he, <laughs> there is one at bat with Thomas Howard. It was, I had, I had to count it up. It was like 19 pitches, not pitches, either pitch or a throw to first base. And they basically had a hit and run on every single one. This dude runs like 20 gassers to second base yeah. over and over again. Uh, I, because it was just foul ball after foul ball and then they throw over. He eventually ends up scoring. He has like a, a play and, deep in the Larkin. hole. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he, and he has another, I mean, he, he basically has some of the biggest plays at the end. He came in as a, def, as a replacement late in that game and he has three or four of the biggest plays in that game that help get them that what they had a three run lead before Karos hit the two run bomb in the ninth off Brantley. That ended up being the difference. It ended up being the difference. Most importantly, yeah, he's wearing number 77. <laughs> I was going to say he's wearing number 77. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I have that. I was like, when did Duncan wear, why did he wear 77? <laughs> And like there's, training? Th- there are guys obviously like Larkin's left over from '90. Jose Rio was on this team, which there, there's a Jose Rio anecdote that I didn't realize until I went back and read some of the game accounts of of these three games that we could touch on later. But Jose Rio's still on this team, and Mariano Duncan was obviously a '90 red as well. But what what casual fans might not remember is he went to Philadelphia for a couple of years, and they got him after the the waiver deadline. They got him in August. They, 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 they got, they, they got a trade through and that's why he was on that team. It wasn't like he had been with the Reds since 1990. I think you could throw some love towards Benito Santiago because you guys talked about his defense in the series. There were a couple of plays at the plate that he makes. He drove in three, hit a home run in the first inning of game one. Um, that's the first name that kind of came to mind to me. But if you're just looking at it statistically, it kind of falls in line with what he did during the season. You know, Barry Larkin was, Probably the best player in the field for the Reds in this series. I I want to talk about Hal Morris. And he's a guy that is constantly overlooked, including in this conversation. And that like the Reds just put out their all decade team. I'm not saying I'm just saying people put Sean Casey on and just in rubber stamp it without looking at Hal Morris had like a ton of huge years where he actually hit better than Sean Casey. Um in with the Reds. He was on the 90 team, obviously. He gets on eight of 13 times he comes to the plate in the series. He has a two out, huge two run double in game one, in the first inning of game one that I think really set the tone that the, cause the, so much of the narrative coming in that we talked about earlier was the Dodgers had all the momentum and the Reds had lazily slopped their way through the end of the season. Kind of reminds me of what, 12? When there was like a thought of, well, the Reds had clinched too early or whatever and they, it's, Regardless, though, you get into 
this thing where they, they all of a sudden came out and they were the aggressor. And these were two, that and the Santiago home run were two of the, in my opinion, maybe the biggest hits in the series. They really set the tone. It had a Davis home run 90 feel to it. That whole entirety of that ending uh, of that inning where it just, it set the tone for the whole thing. Whereas they came out here to LA to win and you know, this was maybe his biggest moment because, you know, he certainly wasn't the central figure of the 90 team at all. I mean, or in the, in the core mix that you taught, you think about, he played all those years. Here's, here's a stat and I'll drop this out here. Since 1970, there have been 47 players with at least 3,000 at bats to hit better than 300. How Morris is one of them. He hit 304. With, with two shy of 4,000 career at bats. I mean, people don't pay enough attention to how good of a hitter he was. And he was great in this series. This might have been his peak moment, really, where he had a great, you know, he had a, a great run of seasons there and he was fantastic in this series that really helped push them along. I just feel like Hal Morris is one of the more underrated players in certainly in recent Reds history. He never gets brought up. He rarely gets talked about, but the dude raked for a long time for some really good teams. The only time anybody ever brings up his name is when somebody wants to criticize a first baseman for not hitting a home run, for not hitting a lot of home runs. I mean, right. like, you would hear this at like peak. Let's criticize Joey Votto in like 2013. Ah, he's Hal Morris. Like, all right. First of all, he's far better than Hal Morris. Second of all, Hal Morris was pretty damn good. And it's, it's interesting because I, that, that all decade of the nineties thing that fans did. All right. You know, you like Paul O'Neill. I get it. He was a big part of the 90 team, had three okay years, but he wasn't here that long and he blew up in New York. Like he was awesome in New York. Or, or they'll, you know, Danny Jackson made it. Danny Jackson pitched in 22 games in the 1990s. Hal Morris was on every Reds team of the 1990s, except for the one season he was in Kansas City in 98. And then when he went to Kansas City, he came back and he was here for two more seasons. He was here a really long time. I don't, I don't have this in front of me, but I, I would imagine if you went and looked at games played leaders in Reds history over the last, in the free agency era, let's call it, Hal Morris is among the top. 15 played over a thousand games and you know, it didn't, didn't put together any, you know, iconic seasons didn't hit a lot of home runs, but I, I would imagine say what you want about the, the statistic of batting average is hit, you know, well over three Oh five. And by well over a few points to me, that's well over or well over 300. Um, I think he had three Oh five, but, I don't think people realize he was here for as long as he was and was as good as he was. And the 95 playoffs from his standpoint, because I don't really remember him doing much in 90. He certainly doesn't catch the last out, which is, is hit to Todd Benzinger. And that's what I was going to actually say. It's like, do you think he's remembered more fondly? He's the one of the 90, you know, the first baseman in the 90s if he's not DHing in game yeah, four. Maybe. If he's the first baseman and he catches that pop up. And he's thought of completely differently. Let's not forget in 90, dude hit 340 with a 136 yeah. OPS plus. He has four seasons with the Reds with an OPS plus of 124 or greater. Four of them. I mean, this is not, this is not some, some throwaway step. Like that is, you know how hard that is to do, but he never, you know, he, you know, he didn't get selected to an all-star game. You know, there's always people critiquing what he didn't do, but what the dude did was just 
hit and maybe he was underappreciated because his, the stats that people look at now more today, they didn't look at as much then. There was more of a focus on whatever, whatever the, you know, the other stats, but like, I, I don't know, man. I, I look at some of the numbers that he put up and the teams that he was on and some of the big spots that he played in. And I just feel like I don't think anybody really appreciated how good he was for how long he was. He's just always sort of like this forgotten name and people don't realize what he was really doing. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine a fan today getting mad that their first baseman doesn't have enough RBI. <laughs> I mean, he does everything else. <laughs> so I guess some things haven't changed no matter, no matter where we're at. Uh, that's my, that's my how Morris soapbox I had. I needed to get off my chest. Sorry. Uh, those, those are some good candidates. Pete Shurik. Is that Pete? That is, that is Pete. If like Pete Shurik is telling his grandkids that he played in baseball, does he just put on game one? Like, sure. It was his, it was his best season. And that was his biggest moment. Uh, Shurik was not very good after that. I mean, that year, but he was really good that year. 3.3 ERA. I mean, and then he was fantastic in game one. Uh, he was great in the playoffs that year. Yeah. I mean, he was great. He pitched two games against Atlanta, threw over 14 innings and gave up two runs. Yeah. I mean, he, he, and then, you know, we talk about what he did in game one against, against the Dodgers. Uh, you know, I, I, I would, I would be willing to bet that if you looked at, uh, starting pitchers with multiple appearances in the postseasons for the Reds, there aren't three guys. There aren't many guys who had the, the combination of starts that Pete Shurik had within a week and a half of, of each other. He was great in that game one against the Dodgers. He was awesome in game one against Atlanta and he did what he could, to, you know, to keep them alive in game four where, you know, they didn't score any runs, but he was, he was great in the postseason. So, and then, then we never heard from him again. Really interesting. Uh, a couple of box score takeaways that I want to drop in here. You know, you have game three where the big moment is. Mark Lewis hits a grand slam. Um, he had in five seasons, 10 career home runs before that. Okay. I mean, that, that was the, you mentioned, I mean, it's the most memorable moment of this. By the way, shout out Jim Palmer. Uh, the ultimate Nostradamus prediction, uh, before the Gantt home run. Earlier, where Palmer literally says, "Oh, Hideo Nomo, he better be careful. He, you can tell, he has got Larkin has got him thinking too much. If he doesn't focus against Ron Gant right here, Gant had 29 dingers this year. Pitch dong. I was like, <laughs> that is incredible. Jim Palmer with the all time called it. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. Um, but no, with with but with the same thing with Lewis, they're not thinking. You're not thinking about home run. But this dude came in." has this massive moment in the in the game's over. Um he only had 10 career home runs before that. Later in the game, Mike Jackson, who was their like number one setup man in this uh series and and part of the and part of the season who was really good that year, uh he has a three run double uh that they pitched they they intentionally walked uh Lewis actually to get to him because he's a reliever in the game's basically out of control. And he had 10 career at-bats, and he laces one to left off Roberto Kelly's glove, and all three runs scored. It's 10 to 1. Like, you talk about the ultimate just, like, kicking the shins at the end of a sweep. 10 career at-bats for Mike Jackson before he hits that ball. You know what else that kind of got me about Mike Jackson? It's so weird 
he's wearing number 42 and how weird it looks to see a 42 out there. Yeah. So I jotted that down. Who's the last red to wear the number 42? A whole bunch of them. Cause I, well, okay. Before, before they, before they standardized it on April 15th every year, who's the last player to, cause I thought it might be Mike Jackson because they, they retired it for good in 97. So I, because I'm a dork, I looked this up. Roger Saltel yeah. wore number 42 in 1996. Oh, big. The, the immortal Roger Saltel. <laughs> they retired it. Nobody wore it after Roger. Exactly. <laughs> what an honor. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure judging by the way that everyone was just all up on Jim Bowden after this series that I'm sure he turned Saltel for Greg Vaughn or something like that. Like that's probably. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so as for box score takeaways, um, th- there's actually a few. C- can we, can we spend some time on how bad Reggie Sanders was? I didn't realize yeah. it until I looked at the box score for game three. Everybody remembers how bad he was against the Atlanta Braves where he struck out, I think nine times and 13 plate appearances, something like that. In fact, I, I can't read my handwriting, but he goes in game three against the Dodgers where they win. He goes 0 for five with five strikeouts. I, I, I mean, something we, I, I should have looked up and we can. How many players in postseason history have gone 0 for 5 with five strikeouts? He struck out. So the Reds played seven postseason games. It's, it's staggering how many strikeouts he, he strikes out two or more times in six of them in the one game where he didn't strike out at least twice. He did strike out once. He has a five strikeout game, a four strikeout game, a three strikeout game, three two strikeout games, and then he made some contact. I didn't remember him striking out five times against the Dodgers in, in game, in game three. Also, yeah. and I, like Hideo Nomo in 1995, kicking the crap out of him was a huge deal. Hideo Nomo in 1995 was a sensation. Led the league in a bunch of categories, started the all-star game, was the first Japanese player to not play in the major leagues, but really take residence in the United States. Like that was beating him with that delivery that he had. Uh, there was some mystery to him. We knew he had this huge throng of, of, uh, Asian reporters covering the team. Like that was, I, I was really psyched to get it. And by the way, Nomo had pitched against him early in the season and dominated them. So to beat him was a really big deal. And then the, the other thing I noticed in watching game three, game three, uh, where they beat the Dodgers at Riverfront is the last game that John McSherry ever umpired. And the next time he would don an umpire's uniform would be opening day the following year when he would, of course, suffer a heart attack. Um, that's his last game because he worked game three, the LDS did not work the rest of the way. And they, they show him. It didn't occur to me that there's a, there's a ball hit down the line. He was the left field umpire in game three and he gives this like exaggerated call and the bullpen is right there. It was right down the third baseline and the Dodgers yeah. relievers are kind of laughing at him. And I'm like, holy crap, that's John McSherry. And I went, looked, he did not work the LCS world series. The next game he would work would be the, the one where he passed away. And so that's, that's a piece of minutia that I, I didn't know until I was, I was rewatching the game. That's, it's, it's wild. Uh, I want kind to bring speaking in of something. I, I just one quick thing. We talked to you, you know. We kind of talked about um, not remembering Hal Morris and, and and all that. 
I mean, it seems like the, the, the kind of perception of, of Reggie Sanders is so colored by the 1995 postseason to forget how good he was. Yeah. And like he, he, you know, a couple of years ago, like the Reds Hall of Fame, like did their like voting and it was Ken Griffey Jr. versus Reggie Sanders. And those were the two finalists. Reggie Sanders had better numbers as a Red. And, yeah. and it's not even, I mean, that debatable. Reggie Sanders was really good. You know, he, uh, I was looking at the MVP voting from that year. Um, Reggie Sanders had a 6.6 war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Barry Larkin was 5.9. The only position player in the National League with more war than, than Reggie Sanders in 1995 was Barry Bonds. And also, he may take heat for the postseason. He had a two run bomb in game two. That was the difference. I mean, technically, when you win five four, um, you know, there, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting, but you're right. It was such, it, there were such memorable failure as far as strikeouts that I think that is, that is the core of, of how people still, uh, view him today. Uh, one other quick bit of trivia from this team. Um, Benito Santiago, do you guys know how many, teams he ended up playing for oh like a billion i was going to bring this up in in relation to uh reggie sanders but benito played he had multiple stints with the reds i know that but he yeah. it felt like he played for everybody nine he played for nine different teams he had he was just shy of seven thousand at bats in the league <laughs> so reggie sanders played for eight and he must have played in the postseason for at least half of them because he was with yeah, the Diamond Yeah, he did. And he was with, he the, was with the Giants, the Cardinals, um, the Giants of the, when they lost in the World Series, he was on that team. Um, but, but by the way, on the, on the NL MVP voting, like Larkin wins it. And the way we talk about it now is if, oh yeah, you know, he was the best player on a team that won the division. I remember that being a surprise. I remember all year long the conversation was Gant could win it and Sanders could win it. I went and looked today just to see where those two fell. Sanders finished sixth. Gant finished 11th. I remember at the time thinking either Greg Maddox or Mike Piazza should win it. And whether I'm right or wrong, I just, I remember that being a surprise. I remember like finding it and being elated and thrilled for Barry, but thinking, I'm not sure he was the best player on his own team, and I'm not sure there was anybody on the Reds that I would say would be the MVP. Like, that was peak Maddox. Piazza's team won it, and he was awesome that year. And Larkin won it, and 25 25 years later, we kind of talk about it as if, oh, yeah, he should have won it. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure. At the time, I wasn't sure. I'm still not sure. Greg Maddox should have won. Yeah. I I don't disagree. That's his best season. He was, he was 19 and two with a 1.63 ERA. Wow. His, where was it? I was looking at his ERA plus was like 260. Um, he gave up eight homers all year. I, I want to point out Larkin was substantially better the next year. Yes. Like he was actually. Yeah. Far better at the plate. There was a lot of other guys. He finished 12th in the MT MVP voting the next year. Now there were a lot of, the juicers started showing up at that point. And there yeah, was a Cam lot. Cam Nitty of, wins. 
Caminiti wins it. Um, there's a lot of Bonds is in the mix there. There's like Bagwell. There's a lot of questionable names in there. But I will say this. I mean, he had his, his OPS plus is 134 and he wins the MVP. It's 155 the next year. I mean, he got on base at a higher clip. He slugged at a higher clip. The thing is, maybe, and maybe it's an infatuation with the stolen base. I mean, the 51 steals and 56 attempts in 131 games for Larkin is a, I think might have been the impactful number that swayed people back then is, a, is like this other thing that he did where it was yeah. sort of the speed, the average, the gold glove. You know, he had a reputation because he'd been in the league. He's 31. He'd won a World Series. I think that's those things end up carrying him in. A, and we're now in a current day. You look back and also the team was really good. Um, and I think that mattered more back then. Uh, but it's an interesting case because I would, it wasn't even, you know, He's better the next year. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I, I so is Barry I Bonds. Recall, yeah, yes. no, I don't recall at any point during that year people talking about Barry Larkin's MVP candidacy at all, and that that doesn't mean that it wasn't a topic. But I, I'm I'm pretty good at remembering such things, and I, I just I don't remember that being a thing where it's like, boy, hope the voters vote for Barry. Um, you know, there, there's an illusion during game three because Larkin did kind of get hurt at the end of the year and he played through some stuff where it's, boy, if he doesn't get hurt, maybe he could have challenged for the batting title and you know, okay. And he was, he was great defensively. And, you know, again, I, I certainly don't view it as, boy, he, he was undeserving until I look at some of the other dudes and I'm with you, C Trent. I like Greg Maddox. I have no issue with the pitcher winning it. He led all of the NL MVP vote getters in war. So I would imagine he led all of national leaguers in war. Like, I just yeah. – certainly that's not something we talked about 25 years ago with any amount of regularity, if at all, but – Because it didn't I, exist. It didn't exist, yeah. Um, but I just – at the time, I don't remember there being a huge push for Barry to be the MVP, and Paul's right. He was better the following season. Well, they don't even mention it during the game, any of those games. They're not like, well, you know, he had an MVP season. There is one point. In the lead up, I think before game one or two, they're, they're, they're talking about how Joe Morgan was, you sure were answering a lot of questions down there before the game. He said, yeah, a lot of people asking me about if Barry Larkin could win the MVP. And I just pointed out he does a lot of the little things that people don't talk about. And that was it. That was sort of the only mention I heard about it where they were sort of like, is that even a possibility? It was almost in, in question. Like, could he even be in the conversation? Uh, much less actually win the thing. And and this will be a side thing just for Mo's own fun and edification, uh, because I, for some reason I was looking at the '96 in a uh, National League MVP voting. Man, Bernard Gilkey was really good that year. <laughs> His one good season. Yes, he put up an eight WAR. Yes, Gilkey thirty home runs. Nobody cared. No, nobody. No. I just I'm looking at that as we speak, and yeah, I it just have... jumped out at me. It was like no. Bernard Gilkey. Bernard Gilkey. And he finished behind Marquis Grissom. I have a few making me feel old. So I just want to drop in there real quick and we can move on uh, and, and start wrapping this up. Uh, making me feel old when they, they break over to a, a, the Braves game on the other side and just shout, Rookie of the Year candidate Chipper Jones. <laughs> oh, Christ. How far back are we? Um, the Tim um, Wallach, Tim, Tim Wallach for no, the no, Dodgers. No, here, 
Here, here, get this. Where is it? Oh God, I got to get it up. You have Tim Wallach for the Dodgers, Delino de Shields, and oh shoot, I wrote it down. Somebody else. Um, Mondesi. All three have kids in the majors now. Yes. Yes. So a third. Chad Chad Wallach drafted by the, drafted by the Reds. Uh, no, no. He was, wasn't he he drafted by the Reds? No, he was with the Reds. He got, he was was in the Matt Latos field. Part of the trade. Okay. Gotcha. Was with the Reds. Yeah. There was also a, a moment during game three where they talk about the Dodgers acquiring Delano de Shields for a promising young pitcher named Pedro Martinez. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is Promising. where Ramon Martinez is the Martinez and Pedro Martinez yeah. is still his little brother. Right. Uh, one other, one other note because I can't get enough of talking about Joe Morgan. At one point he calls the remote the clicker. Yes. <laughs> that was when and he's I go not back gonna... to him. I'm like, you know what? There was a time where that was what the remote was called was the clicker. And they, they make fun of like, yeah, because it clicked. And they make fun of like, oh, what, you too lazy to get up and change the channel? And I'm like, oh, God. No, I think there they're saying, like, why would you turn it off of NBC or the baseball network? Yes, the baseball so network. The, we, we have a category, announcer musings, and a lot of the, a lot of the stuff here we've, we've already kind of discussed. There, there's two that I wanted to mention. One is, uh, there, there's a, a stretch during game three where Palmer and McCarver are talking about how good Barry Larkin is. And Jim Palmer says something to the effect of, you know, at shortstop, it's not a position where you expect a guy to have all the tools where he could hit home runs and be among your, your team's leading hitters. And he's got a great glove and he can run. And now that's set in 1995, <laughs> a year after that, A-Rod and Jeter make their major yeah. league debuts. Nomar's yeah. not that far away. You know, obviously we're still. We're at peak Cal Ripken mania. We're not at peak Cal Ripken, but just think of what would happen at that position within the next couple of years. And, yeah. and these guys are kind of openly lamenting. The other thing I jotted down is I think people of a, of a certain age don't realize how many big baseball games Al Michaels called. Al Michaels is for my money, the, the, one of the, the top two or three. And I, I think few would disagree with this just play by play announcers ever. And you might argue he's the greatest football play by play guy ever. Al Michaels doing baseball is fantastic. And I'm not like a, a big three-man booth guy, but the way he navigates between McCarver and Palmer and sets him up, calls the action, makes uh, the, the the last couple of innings of a blowout interesting, has anecdotes about Cincinnati, talks about Tommy Lasorda. I just wrote down Al and Michaels because I'm not sure how many baseball games he called after this. This might be one of the last ones he ever called, and he's still really freaking good, really freaking good in 1995. I, uh, I, I liked uh, Joe Morgan, like, wouldn't call Jeff Brantley the closer. At one time, he called him the save person. He's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's Davy Johnson's save person. Uh, <laughs> and Gubble's like, yeah, the closer. He's like, yep, uh, nope, save person. Save person. Um, that didn't catch on. I, I want to drop into how would analytics change this, and I'm going to use this as my Tommy Lasorda soapbox. <laughs> okay, I, I like Ramon Martinez, Ishmael Valdez, and Hideo Nomo all had their arms fall off in this series. <laughs> every every single let, let me bring out the the most egregious one is from Game Two, 
and which is a close game. Again, we talked about the importance of this and how it really turned it and, and you know, you end up in the sweep as opposed to opening up a lot of their possibilities. It all comes back to this. There's, first of all, there's an awful call by the ump uh, where Larkin goes for the third out. And so they, they're the, the Reds are still up or excuse me, the Dodgers are up. They have the bases loaded two outs. So instead of the Reds getting out of the inning, bases loaded, two outs. It's a 2-2 game in the bottom of the 6. Valdez has been pretty good. He gave up the home the two-run bomb to Reggie Sanders, but he's been he's been pretty good. He's 80 pitches in. Lasorda leaves him in to hit for himself. <laughs> Can you imagine in today's game what would happen on Twitter or anywhere where people are talking about, "Wait, he's going to leave Valdez in?" To hit to himself, the announcers, by the way, don't even talk about it. They just let no. it go. They leave him in. He ends up. By the way, you know who was up second in that inning? The next inning, Reggie Sanders, who already yeah. had a bomb off of him. He struggles and he grinds his way through the seventh. Then they yank him. You know, it was to pitch one more inning. To pitch one more inning, they didn't pinch hit for him in the bottom of the sixth of a two-two playoff game. With the bases loaded. I, that is, uh, that was, I could not figure, I, I just could not get over it. And then I watched him, I watched him trot Hideo Nomo up there to throw 77 mile per hour fastballs in the sixth inning as they tried to get anything out of him. Yeah. So in, in you're right. Um, in that game, so they get two, they're, they're down two nothing in the series. They're down two nothing in game three. They get a couple of guys on base. There's two on, two outs, and no Mobats for himself. And all three announcers, like Michaels, Palmer, McCarver, are like, well, if this was the sixth inning, you'd pinch hit here, but uh, you just can't do that in the fourth. And I'm like, yeah, you can. <laughs> and and num- number one, it would like in 2020, it wouldn't even be a question. It would be, I mean, you would have you would have managers who are winning that game and go. F it, I'm going for the kill. Give me a bat off the bench. We're turning it over to our bullpen. And here they're like. Yeah, you just, you can't take them out now. You're, it's, it's only the fourth inning. And it's like, whoa, man. Number one, what a terrible managerial decision. Number two, how much we've evolved. Um, you mentioned something though that I jotted down as well. And this has less to do with analytics, but, um, it's just so fun to watch games from this era, at least for me. In the, in the first inning of game three, Larkin steals third base and he's out, but they rule him safe and they got the call wrong and we still lived. Like we yeah. just shrugged our shoulders and like, up, oh, yep, up, oh, missed the call. That's cool. You know, it, we didn't have to go to a replay monitor. We didn't have, you know, I would have preferred to look at it from fifty different angles the way we do now, but we didn't have to stop the game to re-examine it and ensure that we get the correct result, as if the fate of the world is hanging on it. I, I found that to be refreshing. The other thing, though, you talk about how, uh, as, as someone who grew up a Kansas City Royals fan, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Also, by the way, then you get the managerial fight with the yes. like, right. which it's sort of it wasn't that long ago, uh, you know that we yeah we David Bell's never done that. Yeah, no. no. Well, I mean, but the consistent where every questionable call you got to get the manager right. running out just to get in their face, and and you know, and you try to you read lips, see how many times they say horse shit on national television, <laughs> and then like they turn around and run back in, and the announcers like, oh well, you know, he's really got to argue hard because that's a critical call. And it's like it, it's not going to change anything. There's nothing he's going to say that's going to change this. We're just going to watch him yell and show that he's mad, and then run back into the dugout and go back to starting again. This this is kind of a side note. 
I don't know why in baseball it's always horse shit. It's never bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like seriously. I'm around baseball a lot. It's always horse shit. Always. It's always equine, rarely bovine. Rarely bovine. <laughs> that's, that's, that's interesting because I would often hear Mick Cronin go with dog shit, and it was never yeah. horse shit. So maybe that's a, a basketball thing. What, what thing is football? We, what kind uh, of what kind of animal shit do they use in football? <laughs> Paul? I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure what animals animals shit is. It is. I mean. I, Marvin Lewis, none of his, off. none of his had tails, cause <laughs> <laughs> whatever it was was tailless. What, I'm not gonna go there. Let's keep going. <laughs> the other thing quickly though about analytics, um, in all three of these games, somewhere near the top of the broadcast, the announcers will launch into the, oh, you, you really gotta solve the running game of the Reds. And if you don't have, like if you don't know anything about this this particular team or how this series would play out, when is the last time a playoff broadcast began with, well, you know, the key to beating this team is you have to solve their running game. It, teams don't steal bases. The Reds this season led the league in, st- in steals. They stole 190 bases in a 145, 144-game season. For context – the Cardinals and Nationals led uh, the league last year in steals with 116 apiece in a full season, 162. It illustrates how infrequently we steal. The Reds stole nine bases. They stole 13 bases in the postseason. They went nine for nine against Mike Piazza. Now, they had guys who could do it, and certainly there's still, I believe, room in the game for taking advantage of a bad defensive catcher. When's the next time you're going to see a three-game series um, where one team steals, even attempts nine stolen bases, much less is, is successful nine times. So I feel like, to a degree, analytics might have changed the entire offensive approach of this team because it's not like they didn't have guys who could, you know, hit home runs, but they did steal a lot, and that was obviously a big part of what they did. Yeah, it was, and it, it, it really you could see it make a difference. I mean, you you really could see the, how how it changed the game. Certainly, like they were they were concerned with it. There's, there's no doubt about that. And you know, Larkin himself has what four steals in games three. Uh, I mean, whatever it was, so much fun I mean, to watch. Yeah, yeah, yes. And every every pitch they're out there toying with the pitcher too. You know, I mean, every single pitch when somebody was on base. Um, at, at closing this out, uh, let's. How would history change if the opposite result would have happened? What what would have first of all, the biggest thing, the Reds streak without a playoff advancement would then be longer than the Bengals' current drought. Uh yeah. That that would make the ninety World Series playoff advancement also the only one since the seventy six big red machine. Which is wild. Yeah, well. That's, That's all. Like, like almost, you know, you're you're going on fifty years. You know what I mean? You get people don't talk about that very much. <laughs> I don't know that accurate. this. I don't know that this changes anything. But this this whole season and this whole playoff, and we talked about it before in relation to Davy Johnson. Over the course of the next year, things would really start to fling downhill for Mard Shot. Because yeah. even even in even when they they didn't come close to selling out the the first two games against Atlanta, she sounded off on that after game one where she talked about feeling hurt that fans didn't buy tickets. Um, there's the opening day the following year where she complains about 
not having the game when McSherry dies. And then, you know, later that year, she's an SI on the cover, blowing smoke. And she talks about Adolf Hitler saying, well, you know, he was good at the start, but then he went too far. Like, right after this, right after this series, and, you know, they show Marge Schott, and they, you see her when they're celebrating winning the LDS. You know, there's Marge Schott, the owner of the Reds, and she had been suspended a couple of years prior, but she wasn't quite yet this just polarizing, controversial figure who is, by a lot of us, viewed as a total disgrace, and we couldn't wait for her to go away. And like this is this is sort of like the last hurrah, if you will, uh, for for Marge because after this, you know, they they basically took control of the team away from her. She sold it a couple of years later, and she passed away, you know, less than a decade after this series. I'm not sure anything really changes. I just think it's this is it for her. After this, it would really start to get bad with Marge. I'm not sure anything really changes from a baseball perspective. I think whoever would have won this series would have gotten, you know, destroyed by the Braves anyway. They had great pitching. I think it would have been interesting to see what would have happened had the Reds won game one, which they hit it into five double plays. Uh, they blew a one nothing lead in the ninth inning, lost an extra innings. Maybe the series turns out a little bit differently, but that Atlanta team, it just felt like it was their time with that starting pitching. And so I'm not sure anything really changes other than what you just mentioned. Instead of referencing the Bengals all the way back to 1990, we're referencing both teams all the way back to 1990. It's wild. I mean, it's when we talk about all the things that we've through this whole thing, how long ago it was, how much has changed since 1995, 25 years that this franchise and the other professional franchise have not had a single advancement. It's like, it's when you, when you start thinking of it through the lens of watching this game and what was happening at that time, how far we removed we are from that. Um, it's startling. Startling stuff. Um, guys, this was fun. Do you have anything else that you wanted to get to? Did you have any notes that we passed over? If I did, I can't find them. Although I will note, I, I looked it up because I was thinking like, when was the last time we saw somebody steal that much? Uh, the wild card game, uh, in 2014 with the Royals against John Lester. Cause that was, it was immediately, it had to be John Lester. Seven yeah. steals, one caught stealing. Wow. In one game. In one game. In, in, in this century. Yeah, that's insane. That's insane. It, it's just, it's interesting to me. That was a weird team too. Just yeah. because they had so much speed. You had Lorenzo K, Terrence score. I mean. And they, they had a bunch know, of dudes they, that they used as pinch Dyson. runners in that game. Right. Yeah. And, and it was all because of, it was all because of, of Lester. I mean, and then, then in the, um, NLC, ALC, uh, is it, let's see. I guess the ALCS I'm looking at. Yeah. The ALCS, when they beat the Orioles, they had one steal in that whole series. Wow. That, that, that playoff game, would that be, you know what I remember about that game? It went like 13 innings. Yeah. Something Adam like Dunn, Adam Dunn finally gets to the postseason and never comes off the bench. And that was his <laughs> last time he played. The last time he put on a uniform. Huh. How about that? Wait, so all this time to get to the postseason, it gets traded to the A's. They play in the wild card game. It goes a thousand innings and he never gets off the bench. <laughs> but oh, that's what the DH does. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you know we're like, going to see that. We're going to have these expanded rosters. All over the joint. I don't know who the, it was, it was Bob Guerin. I don't know who the manager of the A's was, but there was never like a, a lefty righty matchup where he's like, well, you know what? We could win this with one swing. Let's send Adam up there to try to give us that swing. Instead, he 
remain parked on the bench for the whole game. <laughs> we could probably do a, some some pretty good uh, podcasts on Adam Dunn era teams, or just Adam Dunn in general. There's a lot to there's a lot to unpack with Adam Dunn. If we could get a hold of the uh, the the game where he hits the grand slam when they're losing seven nothing to the Indians, and he he drills one off Bob Whitman, that would be fun because that might be the high point between 2000 and 2010. So I would be all all for that. A lot of low points in there. <laughs> a lot of low points, uh, guys. I appreciate the time, and for everybody that stuck around. Uh, thanks for listening to the end. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We hope to have uh, some more of these across uh, all the Cincinnati sports uh, where we kind of do these dives into big games, big events, uh, significant for some reason. The next one on the agenda, because I'm sticking with a theme, I'm very big in themes, the last time the Cincinnati Bengals advanced in the postseason. We're going to go back uh, and look at their the their game, the Bo Jackson game, in fact. Um uh, if you want to go back into that. So a lot, lot we'll, we'll be diving into, uh, into that very soon. Uh, thanks to Jeff Brantley, uh, for joining us and for everybody for listening. I hope you all enjoyed it and we look forward to talking to you next time on WARP in Cincinnati. Ooh.